We'll be talking about the Cuyahoga County Adams Board, I think for the third time in four days, but not for what we talked about them before. This is even odder. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Courtney Astolfi, Lisa Garvin, and Layla Tassi. It's a Thursday. Hope you all are well. Yeah. Yeah, one day to Friday. You know, we just tick down the calendar, waiting till the weekend. <laughs> well, I'm doing large jobs, so I feel like I've gone through two weeks already this week. So <laughs> I passed Friday like midday yesterday. Now I'm heading into next week. Let's begin. What did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine and the other members of the State Redistricting Commission offer as reasons that they should not be held in contempt of the Supreme Court for defying a court order to produce new legislative maps by last Friday? And Lisa, Skip Hall and the team that puts out The Plain Dealer had the best illustration for this story on the front page of the print edition today. And it explains exactly in visual terms what you were about to explain here. Yeah, it's a wonderful photograph on the top of the fold of today's paper with a bunch of fingers pointing towards the middle or pointing towards each other. And that's basically what happened among the members of the redistricting commission. They basically said, the Republicans on the commission basically said, well, you can't really hold this in contempt as individuals because we're not acting as individuals or acting on part of the commission. Um, and it depends on who you talk to. If you talk to Governor Mike DeWine, uh, Secretary of State Frank LaRose, and Auditor Keith Faber, they say, well, we don't even have the MAP software or the expertise because it's controlled by Bob Cup and Matt Huffman. They control the purse strings. Right, stop, stop, mm-hmm. stop, stop. Well, let's stop on that one, though, because they say that over and over again. It's the governor, the secretary of state, and the auditor. They have budgets. They, they run gigantic operations. To keep saying we don't have the software, buy the software. And that is the lamest excuse we've heard is, yeah, we can't do anything because those guys have the software. It's not expensive. Buy your own. Get somebody in your department to play with it. You telling me Frank LaRose, as secretary of state, can't imagine what the districts could be if he had software? So let's just put that to bed. That's baloney. Okay. Okay, go ahead. Okay, and further, Governor DeWine says, well, he tried to get the commission to act. He was opposed to the commission declaring an impasse, which they did uh, last week and earlier this week. He says, I only have control over my own actions, and I'm not accountable for the commission as a whole. Now, if we move on to uh, LaRose and Faber, they further said that they couldn't convince the Democratic map makers to make their map makers to make their map acceptable to Republicans. And they say that the maps that the Dems did produce unfairly harmed GOP incumbents, drew bizarre districts. And they further said that, well, you know, it's not their fault that they are unable to introduce a new map within 10 days. So there you go. All right. So so let's deal with these guys. Mike DeWine saying he's just one person, but he's the governor. I mean, that's like the most powerful person in the state. And he could have said to LaRose and Faber, look, let's get this done. Let's get with the Democrats. We're not that far apart. Let's sit down and make this work. Instead of pointing at each other and saying, you failed, you failed, they could have just done it. That's what mature people who have a goal do. They make it happen. Do you really think Mike DeWine has gotten as far as he has in his career (laughs) by shrugging his shoulders and saying, beats me, I don't know how to do it. That's not how you, you become a senator and a 
attorney general and a governor, you get stuff done. So that's baloney. What did uh, Cup and Huffman say? Well, they say that, again, they said you can't punish commission members individually. And they also say that the Supreme Court can't order lawmakers to pass laws. They say that that constitutes a grave separation of powers. And uh, they further said, well, you know, it's impossible to draw a new map in 10 days. <laughs> but they anticipate voting on new maps this week. They're not. The Supreme Court's not demanding they pass a law. What the Supreme Court's doing is upholding the Constitution, which requires these people to draw maps. That, I mean, for them to say, you can't make us do it. The people of Ohio are making you do it. We passed the constitutional amendment that said do it, and they're violating the Constitution. The Supreme Court is the guardian saying you got to do your jobs, guys. The people of Ohio voted for the constitutional amendment. What do the Democrats say? Well, Allison Russo and Vernon Sykes actually apologized to the Supreme Court. They said, we know, we're sorry that the committee failed or the commission failed to act, and they implored the court to look at their maps that they've drawn up. So... We'll see what happens there. But, yeah, this it's, it's like a circular firing squad. It's crazy. Layla, I'll bet that if your kids in school had a class project to draw the maps, <laughs> they could do it. I should. That would be hilarious. Do you want me to ask them to do it and we can post I, them on I, Cleveland.com? I bet they could do it because the, the teacher would lead and say, here's our goal. Let's draw some oh maps. God, and they so would do funny. it. That's, that right. would be great. That is a great idea. What children can manage to do, our elected leaders are failing miserably and just making excuses. This was the lamest kind of thing I've seen. I thought they were going to come in with something, you know, halfway reasonable. But they basically came in and said nana, nana, boo, boo, like the children in, in a school So what class. do you think Maureen so, O'Connor is going to do with all this? I don't know. I don't know. She, is she going to give them another couple of days because they keep promising to she do a map? Just or does she just off with their heads, right? <laughs> yeah. I, 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 it's time, I, right? Look, I've said for weeks, lock them in a jail cell as and under contempt citation and say, I'll let you out when you fulfill your duties under the Constitution, you guys who are letting down the entire state. We'll see. It's a, it's a continuing constitutional crisis in Ohio and a real bearing of our lack of leadership in the Statehouse. It's Today in Ohio. Why can't the Cuyahoga County Mental Health Board make up its mind about whether racism is a public health crisis? Are they spending too much time, Layla, playing golf and ballroom <laughs> dancing? Way to draw together all the, the threads about the Alcohol, Drug Addiction, and Mental Health Services Board. So I'm sure the Adams Board has not been, has not been enjoying their time in the limelight lately, but they're kind of bringing it upon themselves here. Um, so back in June 2020, after police murdered George Floyd in Minneapolis, every institution, big and small, was in issuing resolutions declaring racism a public health crisis. And the Adams Board was one of them. And they were pretty strong about it. They pointed to other deaths and mistreatment as examples of systemic racism by individuals in power who abused their authority. Then, kind of out of the blue this past November, the board unanimously voted to edit out of that resolution the word racism and replace it with the word discrimination, which board chair Reverend Benjamin Golston thought was more accurate and less divisive. And you can imagine the backlash that this invited from organizations and advocacy groups. So 
they decided to backtrack yet again. And they had planned to approve new language on Wednesday to restore the word racism, but change public health crisis to behavioral health crisis. So after our Caitlin Durbin wrote about that yesterday in, in, in a great, I mean, you got to read the story. It's really great. She wrote about that in advance of the board's late afternoon meeting, and they called to let her know that actually they're going to go back to their original resolution declaring racism <laughs> a public health crisis. So then they unanimously approved it without discussion, which obviously they just wanted to like move through it and past it. So, you know, well, go ahead. You're going to ask something. Well, I, the thing is, they did it, right? They did the right thing. The, 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 the facts and the data are clear. It is a public health crisis for all the reasons we've articulated over the past few years. And they did it. And, and they're done. They, there was nobody calling on them to change it. It's not like we're in rural Ohio where, like, the state school board where people were acting like nuts. This is Cuyahoga County. It's pretty left-leaning. They were fine. They only got into the jackpot by, by repeatedly changing it and coming up with silly words. What is a behavioral health crisis? I know. Is that what happens when you're, you make your kid go to bed and they want to watch the end of the television show? <laughs> I mean, that's like, that's not anywhere close well, to a public health crisis. The joke you made the other day is that what you get when you tell your employees they can't expense their golf lessons. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, so right. they, they said that, that changing the original resolution wasn't an attempt to say that racism doesn't exist, but rather Golston just wanted to contribute, didn't want to contribute to the divisiveness that we're seeing surrounding the word racism. So, I mean, Golston had said at a previous meeting he was uncomfortable with the word racism because, quote, it's a battle that we can't fight nor win. There is only one race, the human race. We're fighting discrimination and bigotry-based ethnicity, color of skin and national origin. And we must understand that as we move, you know, we have to understand that as we move forward. So, but, you know, like the, the NAACP William Tarter Jr., who's the second vice president for the Cleveland branch, said removing racism from the mission sends an incomplete message about systemic racism and adverse health outcomes not totally encapsulated solely by the word discrimination. And it makes it more difficult to address historical decision making that continues to lead to adverse health outcomes for black Americans in present day. And that's so spot on. I mean, honestly, also. I, I found the switch from from public health crisis to behavioral health crisis, you know, as troubling as switching racism to discrimination. It, it's it's a semantic change that they say more clearly focused on the aspect of public health that touches their mission. But the term behavioral health crisis, I've only ever heard that used to describe behavior of individuals who are experiencing a behavioral health crisis. Altering the resolution in that way, I think, really sends the message that they're taking the responsibility to address racism off the shoulders of society and its systems. And, and you know, I just I found that to be, you know, I'm so glad that they went back to their original resolution and they're just ending the conversation there. <laughs> Well, I, you know, and I also want to call out the bogus argument that, that that's their mission. We, we've seen over and over again implicit racism in the way black people are treated in health institutions, including mental health institutions, which is what they deal mm -hmm. with. And, and we've seen it over and over again. We had the survey a couple of weeks ago in which black people said in very large numbers, particularly black women, that doctors aren't hearing them when they discuss their, their conditions. Far, far higher numbers of that than you get with white people. 
And this is what they deal with. They deal with people that need mental health treatment or drug counseling and addiction counseling. So it is at the very center of their mission, the way that black people in particular are treated by the health professions. Mm -hmm. The whole thing, their whole argument, everything they did after they passed the, the first resolution makes no sense and now has brought intense ridicule on them, including from right here. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Did the Solon City Council reject overwrought residents who claim bike paths bring child molesters into their orbit and approve a trail proposed in the city? Courtney, Steve Litt has been all over this. This is one of the series of these discussions that have been had in Cleveland and Mayfield and now Solon, where people are coming out against, of all things, bike paths. Yeah, council, council shut those naysayers down completely. Council voted unanimously Tuesday night, 7-0, to zero, to approve this agreement with the Metro Parks that'll bring this two-mile trail to their city, connect them up to Bentleyville, making use of a defunct you know, rail line with plans to eventually hook up with another trail section that's planned up to Chagrin Falls. You know, council basically said at this meeting that that this negative feedback from residents who were, who were pretty vocal about what they saw as the potential negative impacts of this trail, they said they believed most residents were in favor. It was the loud ones who, who were making the argument, and they kind of dismissed it and sided with what they think residents want in general. I what I I never did understand is how people got into such a lather about the the bad people that might be on the path and coming into their yards. I, was that something that that flourished in social chat rooms or something? Because it's not it's not a natural reaction that oh if I have a bike path running past my backyard I'll have criminals all over my house. I mean that's how do you get from one to the next? And I just wondered if there was somebody out fanning the flames we had that in mayfield there were a couple of people that were really fanning the flames and scaring people but did that happen here you know not not too sure where this this notion came from but i will say solon mayor ed kraus said you know when you look at the facts here a nice flourishing trail that has a lot of visitors is going to be probably safer than an abandoned rail line like if you're worried about safety (laughs) one's clearly better than the other yeah, it's good. I'm glad that Solon did the right thing. I wish Mayfield would, too. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What percentage of Americans identify themselves as LGBTQ, and how does that compare to the rate in Ohio? Lisa, this story came from a Gallup poll. Yeah, the Gallup study found that nationwide, the people, the percentage of adults who identify as lesbian, gay, uh, bisexual, transgender, or queer is at 7.1%. That has doubled from the last uh, survey in 2012. And and it kind of breaks down uh, demographically as well, because uh, Generation Z those born between 1997 and 2003, one in six identify as LGBTQ. Millennials born 1981 to 96, it's one in 10, and it's probably lower amongst us boomers. In Ohio, not quite as high. We're at 4.3% who identify as LGBTQ. That's 20th overall. But they did find Columbus is very queer friendly. Uh, this was a, an earlier Gallup poll that was done in 2015. But Cleveland was one of the lowest ranked. But there are areas in Cleveland all on the west side of the river that are gay friendly, including Lakewood, Tremont, Ohio City, Edgewater, and the Detroit Shoreway neighborhood. 
I just wonder whether the reason Ohio's numbers are low is because people don't feel welcome in the state and they go elsewhere. That that you would think that the national rate would just be be standard, right? right. I mean, it, 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 I don't think it's geography based. So what accounts for us having the lower rate? And is it is it people just don't feel comfortable living in Ohio, and so they go to places where they feel more welcome? And Ohio has never had any protections, really. I mean, we've never been able to vote for protections against discriminating these against LGBTQ population. You know, they, they don't have protections in looking for housing, jobs, or trying to adopt children. And there are no transgender inclusive health benefits anywhere in Ohio. And we have we we have to remember that uh, Dewine attached something to the budget bill that allows doctors to refuse to treat transgender patients based on moral grounds. Well, that's not putting out the welcome yeah, mat. That's super hostile. Of course, people wouldn't want to come to Ohio if that if you know if that's on on the books. That's awful. And. Yeah, it's just yeah. No, point. I mean, you talk about people not wanting to be here without those protections and in a welcoming atmosphere, but also maybe folks who are here aren't comfortable coming out and identifying as they would if they were around folks who were more welcoming. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the number, the increased yeah. numbers, obviously also reflect the the level of comfort people feel being who they are in society. Mm-hmm. So you're right, I think, Courtney. It's a disturbing study for Ohio because as you try and bring employers here and attract people to move here, you you have a huge roadblock there that uh, keeps them away. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Who's replacing Terry Allen as the head of the Cuyahoga County Health Department? And is there any chance the replacement could be less transparent (laughs) than Allen's instinct was to be at the beginning of the pandemic? Layla, this podcast is coming up on its second anniversary as a five-day-a-week uh, uh, podcast. And in the early days when the, the pandemic was flourishing, we talked about Terry Allen a lot because he and the Cuyahoga County Health Board were major league dinosaurs in trying to prevent the public from knowing right. anything about the spread of it. We pounded them and pounded them. And I actually take credit for the fact that we shook loose the zip code maps that people were so desperate to see. Right. But they took this ridiculous, ridiculous position that if we say where, which zip code somebody with the coronavirus lives, we're invading their privacy, which it was preposterous. And I was always struck by how little these folks, with Terry Allen as the leader, didn't care about the, the desires of the people that right, pay their salary. Right. It was just ridiculous. Especially so, considering that, that it was information that the state later routinely released and still does. So, yeah, I agree. I agree. It was. It's been a, ro- a rocky road for for his uh, leadership, but the, the county board of health has has chosen Roderick Harris to replace him beginning il- April 11th. And Harris currently serves as a deputy director for the Allegheny County Health Department in Pennsylvania. But he's a Cleveland native who actually began his work in public health at the Cuyahoga County Board of Health, and he's really excited to return to his hometown in this leadership capacity. In Pittsburgh, he oversaw gun violence prevention efforts and and served as principal investigator for a federally funded project to address health disparities in black communities. Terry Allen has been at the Board of Health for 33 years. 18 of those were as health commissioner, and he said that he felt like now was a good time to retire now that the COVID numbers are receding. But as you said, Chris, I mean, the pandemic has been, you know, 
as the uh, <laughs> he is yeah. the board of health is you know was suddenly pl- playing a very very important role in in March 2020 after you know no one really really paid attention to what the board of health was doing until until then and under Allen's leadership they were just so slow to release that local level information just basic demographic details i mean citing those privacy reasons for withholding it and, you know, when the second person died of COVID in Cuyahoga County, the department said patient privacy again, were the, you know, those were the concerns preventing it from providing the age and gender of that person, even though three days earlier, Amy Acton confirmed that information about the, the first death. So, um, you know, hundreds of readers were contacting yeah. us, wanting to know more on, 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 on the ground details of how COVID was affecting their communities. And we just could not pry it from Terry Allen's hands. Well, take it further, though, too. You, you wrote a bunch of things about oh, the yeah. vaccine queens right. helping people get vaccines. The health department never did. Right. They never did a damn thing to help people get the vaccines. I, I remember the agony. We were getting so much email from people that they could not find a place to get the vaccine when the vaccines became available. So what would a good public-minded health department do? They would help them. Right. And instead, it fell to these two women who just did it in their own time. I, I, I just think it's been buffoonery from day one, and I question the whole existence of these health boards because they don't answer to the you public. Know, we can't get rid of them. And speaking of the vaccine queens, the, they are the ones who expose the fact that the Board of Health had virtually no plan to vaccinate folks who were homebound. And you might remember that Allen had assembled a homebound vaccination work group, but for months they were spinning their wheels trying to settle on a definition of the word homebound. So the vaccine queens eventually, (laughs) eventually they just stepped in and made their own arrangements for people with local first responders and pharmacies to get vaccine out to people at their homes. And that really lit the fire under Terry Allen and his work group to get motivated to, to, to actually save face. Yeah, I, they, they get a gigantic F for their work during the pandemic. The only thing I think they did halfway decent was give schools some good advice on how to deal with it in the beginning. But it, it, it just was a massive failure by the entire board and by Terry Allen to consider how the public was feeling about this very scary new virus and and help them it was just a, a ridiculous joke so good riddance i hope the door hits him on his way out and i hope the new guy brings a much more transparent and public-minded instinct to the job you're listening to today in ohio what's the background of ryan puente who was instrumental in the campaign to get justin bibb elected mayor of cleveland and is now joined the bibb administration Courtney, you're profiling individual members of the administration so people get to know who the leaders will be. This was an interesting story. He's got some character and some personality. Yeah, and I really wanted to profile Puente early in the series because he is such a key advisor to Mayor Bibb. Him and uh, Chief Strategy Officer Brad Davey basically are are the closest folks in in Mayor Bibb's ear. So like you said, uh, Ryan Puente has quite an interesting background. You know, he's... He did as a as a young man. He, he did two internships with Senator Sherrod Brown. He did two coveted internships at the White House while he was getting a degree in, in D.C. And he thought he was going to stay in the federal government, but he missed Northeast Ohio and he wanted to come home. So he packed up his bags, came back to the Cleveland area and started working on campaigns at uh, Burgess and Burgess, doing a bunch of different work there. And then he moved on over to to be the director of the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party. 
And then from there, he was off and running, um, you know, getting Bibb into office on one heck of a campaign effort last year. Yeah, I, I think you can't really underestimate how remarkable it was that Bibb is mayor because there was a crowded field of well-known people, council people and others, and he, he trounced them all. He trounced Kevin Kelly, who was the establishment candidate. People were doing all sorts of sleazy things to get him elected. And Bibb won handily. He won the primary handily, and he won the general election handily. And and Ryan ran a clean campaign. I mean, Bibb's campaign was all about positivity, what he wants to do, how he wants to, to bring Cleveland back. And they didn't descend into some of the ugly stuff the other campaigns did so it, it, it's a big win i mean for the rest of his career ryan puente is gonna know <laughs> i did something pretty pretty impossible there. yeah well um you know given that that huge success he, he helped shepherd um a lot of people were speculating at the end of last year where's he gonna go is he gonna really delve into the campaign side of the world or is he gonna join up with bib in the cabinet and lo and behold he, he did move over to city government He's chief of government affairs, so he's he kind of described his new work as pretty similar to campaigning. He's, you know, working with city council, federal government folks, state government folks, and other groups to kind of be, you know, Mayor Bibb's point man to the outside world. Yeah, I don't know him at all, but people who I know who know him are very impressed with him. So it's a great get for Justin Bibb to bring him into the administration. Check out Courtney's story on Cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. Where does the $180 million first energy settlement in the shareholders' derivative lawsuit stand in the history of this kind of settlement? And Lisa, let's remember that this is the suit filed against the corporate officials for being corrupt with the money for the settlement coming from the first energy insurance company. This is entirely separate from the lawsuit shareholders have brought for all the money they lost when the corruption crashed the utilities price. So where does this settlement stand? Is this big for these kinds of things or is it not so much? Well, it depends. I mean, uh, it's $180 million that was awarded in these derivative lawsuits. And let me explain that a derivative lawsuit is one that's filed to make corporations that they're filing against whole from the damages caused by its executives, which certainly appears to happen here. There's a guy named Kevin LaCroix, LaCroix rather, who blogs about insurance issues for, you know, company directors and officers. He ranks it at number six. Uh, number one would be Google at $310 million. Um, uh, investor attorneys who filed had filings Tuesday in Akron said this is among one of the largest recoveries ever in U.S. history, and um, that they, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Oh, and they also said that the fact that the first energy board of directors has had such big turnover is unprecedented. Six of 16 of people on the board of directors of First Energy will be replaced, and they say that that's very unusual in a derivative suit. So, uh, yeah, a lot of money, maybe not the most, but it's up there. Yeah, it's a big it's a big settlement. It just shows you the damage that these guys did in running this company and and you know, spearheading the entire corruption bribery case. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. It is hard to believe that ten years have passed since the Chardon school shooting. How is the Coach Hall Foundation commemorating the anniversary? Layla, this is this was 
Greater Cleveland's real uh, entry into to horrible school shootings. I guess it was the second because Success Tech right, was the right. first. Um, but Coach Hall was a hero of the day. He chased chased the shooter out of the school and now had set up a foundation. What are they doing to, to try and mark this yeah. occasion? Yeah, I mean, man, I agree. It's, it is really hard to believe it's been a decade. I remember it so clearly. Uh, so on February 27, 2012, T.J. Lane, who was a student at Chardon High School, opened fire in the cafeteria and killed fellow students Daniel Parmador, Russell King Jr., and Demetrius Hewlin, and three more teens were injured, including Nick Walzak, who is today paralyzed and unable to walk. And so, you know, Chris, as you said, one of the great heroes of the day was football coach Frank Hall. He chased Lane out of the building and then came back to the cafeteria to help the injured students until help arrived. And since then, the Coach Hall Foundation was formed to help prevent school violence. And this year, the foundation is asking people, groups, organizations to honor the three teens who died in the shooting through a campaign that they're calling 27 Days of Be the Change. It's a challenge to make one act of kindness every day throughout the month and hopefully inspire people to change lives by just caring for each other. And participants are being asked to share their experiences on Twitter by using the hashtag 27 Be the Change. And the president of the foundation is Tim Armelli. He was the high school's health and physical education teacher at the time of the shooting. He's now retired. But on that day, he was manning the school's PA system, alerting students and teachers of the danger in the building and instructing them on, on what to do to remain safe. He is the one who came up with the idea for this kindness campaign. It's, I think, a really lovely way to pay homage to those who lost their lives on that awful day and also to kind of you know, move forward through such div- divisive times and, and in reflection of, of um, you know, the kind of alienation that gives, ride to, gives rise to, to violence of this nature. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That'll do it for a Thursday discussion. I always like it when we go so deep we can't get to all the stories because it means the discussions are lively. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back Friday to wrap up the week of the news. 